You're listening to County Conversations, a podcast brought to you by the New York State Association of Counties. This episode features a conversation on organ and tissue donation in recognition of National Donate Life Month. Joining us for the conversation is the Executive Director at Donate Life New York State, Aisha Tater. We'll talk about the current need in the state for organ transplants, dispel some common misconceptions, and discuss how counties can encourage organ donor registration. We are also grateful to be joined by Lauren and Jean Shield to tell us about their recipient and donor experiences. Not only is Lauren a heart recipient, but last year when she needed a kidney, her mother Jean donated hers. Thanks for listening in. We are joined by some folks from Donate Life New York State who you hear from in just a moment as they introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Aisha Tater. I'm the executive director for Donate Life New York State. Our organization is a small nonprofit, uh, statewide nonprofit that's dedicated to increasing organ eye and tissue donation. Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Shields and I'm a double organ transplant recipient. Hi everyone, my name is Jean Shields. I am uh, Lauren Shields' mom and I am also a living donor. Great, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us this morning as we talk about uh, the need for organ donors and the organ donation process in New York State and what how counties can get involved. Um, so first off, um, if one of you could touch on the need for organ donors in New York State, is there an estimate of how many people in the state are looking for an organ? Yeah, you know, this is something where, um, unfortunately, New York really struggles. We have an estimated 9,000 people on the national transplant wait list. We are third greatest in the need for organs for transplant to save people's lives. And unfortunately in New York, we have patients wait, um, you know, an exceedingly long time. You know, for a liver, you can wait approximately three years. For a kidney, it's about five years. And in other states, even in neighboring states like Massachusetts, you can wait six months, even three months. So yes, the situation in New York is, is dire. And Lauren and Jean, could you talk about how long your process was with both um, receiving your transplant and also being a donor? So uh, when I received my heart transplant, I was fortunate enough to only have to wait a month and a half for my heart. But each day that I waited was really so critical. And each day I became more sick um, than the last. And so while I waited, I needed to be placed um, in a medically induced coma. And I was on life support for 15 days, the last 15 days that I was waiting for my heart. And the, the, the machines are you know really tough for anyone. Um, so the waiting period is really crucial to try to, um, any way that you know we can try to make the wait shorter would really benefit everyone who's waiting. And with the kidney, my mom was my donor. So my mom had to go through a lot of different procedures um, and clearance because they make sure that the donor is really in the best health possible in order to donate. And mom, I don't know if you wanna say a little bit about that experience. 
yeah, like Lauren said, the, the, uh, the process for me was lengthy, but certainly those were all tests and things that were needed just to be sure that I was healthy enough to go through the surgery. And, um, you know, we were, we were really uh, very anxious to get, get it going, get the process going. We were doing it during COVID, so that made it kind of tough. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, if, if I had to uh, think, when I think back, um, certainly the, the wait for the, the, the heart transplant was something that was really, really grueling for us uh, as a family. And, um, and certainly watching Lauren go through it was really, really heartbreaking. Wow. And you had mentioned that the kidney transplant was during COVID. Now it's been a year. Um, how recent was uh, that surgery? The kidney transplant was in July of 2020. So still pretty recent. Um, I had been diagnosed with kidney disease at the beginning of uh, 2020. So it, it was quite a year. And um, my kidney disease progressed very quickly. And it was brought on by the medications that I have to take for my heart transplant. So I take those medications every day to suppress my immune system and make sure that my heart, you know, is healthy. But unfortunately, you know, it affects everyone differently. And some people are fine on the medications. And it just so happened that in my case, um, I did end up needing to have a kidney transplant. And going through that during COVID was, made it more challenging for sure. As if it wasn't already challenging enough. Wow. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a donor and how um, you could go about becoming a donor? Like who typically, you're talking about some clearance um, tests, Jean. Um, is that something that you typically go through when you are already matched with someone as a living donor? Uh, well, so in our case, as soon as we found out that there was a possibility that Lauren would need a kidney transplant, uh, the, one of the first things I did was get the the first test was just to see if I was a, a, a blood match, you know, if our blood types were the same. And um, even though once we found out that we were a match, that seemed like great news. And we were like, okay, this is great. We're gonna roll right through it. Um, that's only the first step. And even thereafter, there's still, they do more blood tests to make sure that there's no antibodies that would react. Um, and so, and then they start the process. Once you clear that, that hurdle, then you go through some more testing again, just to make sure that um, the help is there. Um, I did it through Columbia Presbyterian, so everything was done through their, uh, their uh, portal. They're, they have a, a special portal for people that are interested in becoming living donors. And so for anyone who would ever think that this might be something they'd be interested in, that would be the first step. You know, you go um, into the portal and you put your information in and then someone will contact you and, and they take it from there. And so Aisha, do you help pair um, folks who are registered organ donors with people who need um, transplants, is that sort of, or is the process different? It is entirely different oh, okay. um, for deceased donation. Yeah, so, you know, there is all of that matching that's taking place, but it's, it's done at the end of life. So, you know, and it is an entirely different process with um, enrolling as an organ and tissue donor, because you do that today, 
um, while you're healthy and while you're, you know, um, you know, you're, you're thinking about this process and you're wanting to, you know, someday, um, if something happens to me, I want to make sure that somebody else can perhaps either get the, you know, get, save their life through, don you know, organ donation, or perhaps restore their sight through um, eye donation. So that decision is not, and it's, and it's totally separate between, you know, when you go to the DMV and you register as an organized tissue donor, you go into a large database, and it's only when something, either a tragedy occurs, or again, at the end of life, then you're considered as a donor, they look you up on the registry, they say, oh, this person, this is what they wanted to have happen. And then they start kind of going through the medical screening process and identifying, and it's an organ procurement organization that really does this facilitation between, you know, looking at the individual on the registry, on the database, their medical condition and circumstances. And then on the other side, the transplant, the Lauren, who's waiting to receive. Wow. Um, I'm a registered organ donor and I, I have to admit when I, it was just a form at the DMV that I just checked the yes. box and then I didn't think so much about it. So uh, in, more of you, Kate. <laughs> I hope so. Um, and so along those lines, um, how do most people typically, um, like in your experiences, how do they first typically hear about organ donation or um, become interested in becoming a donor? Um, yeah. So, you know, it's exactly what you just described. Most people, over 80% of people of the 6.5 million New Yorkers who have registered as organized tissue donors in the New York State Donate Life Registry did so through the DMV. But with the help of Lauren and Jean, uh, Donate Life New York State over the past 10 years has passed some really innovative legislation that has expanded this opportunity outside the DMV. So people can enroll while they're getting their health insurance through the New York State of Health Marketplace. They can enroll when they're getting their hunting and fishing license um, through the Department of State and professional licenses. We're actually looking at legislation this year to also include the what we call the donor designation question in e-tax filings or in you know um, the Higher Education Services Corporation college tuition assistance programs. And so, you know, the strategy has been, let's not only rely on the DMV, let's get this question in front of New Yorkers in as many places as possible. Great. Um, and so along those lines, what are some other ways uh, that awareness can be raised about organ donation, tissue donation, um, other than just seeing that like, that ticking box when you're at those places? Yeah, so, you know, specifically, I think one of the important ways that the counties and your membership can play an important role here is through awareness, right? You are pioneers, innovators, and leaders in your community, and you have the ability to really, you know, be a beacon of awareness. And there's a lot of different activities that the county governments can do. We provide flags for flag raising ceremonies. You have flagpoles outside of your courthouses, outside of your um, you know, town central offices. Uh, that's a really nice opportunity to bring in the press, bring in somebody like Lauren and have the, you know, um, a really motivational experience to help raise awareness about this 
about this important need for New Yorkers to enroll as organ and tissue donors. We also have a really um, fantastic partnership with the New York State, New York State Association of County Clerks, which I think we could probably replicate with the county associations where we partner every April for Donate Life Month. And I send them, my organization sends them all sorts of promotional material, posters, clings for windows, flags, toolkits, social media templates, press release templates to give them all of the information and all the materials they would need to do events in their community and at their offices to raise awareness. I send them t-shirts, all sorts of different um, you know, collateral material so that then not only are they you know, the leaders in their organization and in their communities, but they're sending the message, the cultural important message that this is what we do for one, one another in New York. We help each other. We're there for each other. We're there for each other in other crises. We need to be there for each other in this crisis. Exactly. And you know, there's another really um, interesting thing that we have, Kate, that is new, which is we have the technological ability. So not only can the counties be beacons of awareness, but you can actually give someone the opportunity to enroll as an organized tissue donor. You can be almost like the DMV. So we now have, we run and are the contractors for the state of New York for the New York State Donate Life Registry. We've developed the technology that we can take the enrollment form, all of the questions to sign up as an organ and tissue donor, and we can put that enrollment form in every single county's website. So as you are sending out this positive message, you can direct your community to your website where they can sign up as an organized tissue donor and it goes directly into the database. And I think that's something really important that is new and an opportunity to, again, get this question wholesale in front of as many New Yorkers as possible. Fantastic. So would counties, interested counties who want that uh, donor form on their website, would they reach out to you um, in your office? Absolutely. Great. Um, now, Lauren and Jean, I was just wondering, um, so have you been able to share your donor story in your community and talk about um, the impact of um, like your donation with um, the folks that are in your community? Yes, we have had the opportunity to, um, I've had the opportunity to share my story um, with other people throughout the community um, and especially, you know, New York Presbyterian, you know, where I had both of my transplants, they have done, you know, some stories on me where I'm able to share my story with the whole New York Presbyterian um, community and, you know, share not only how grateful I am to the hospital itself and how great, you know, the care was that I received, but really how important organ donation is and how important it is to remind people of it and how important it is for people to, you know, take the step and to go sign up to become organ donors. And from your perspective, Lauren, uh, what would you want to tell county officials who want to get more involved with uh, this process to host the portal? Uh, what more would you recommend from your end as a recipient? I think, um, as Aisha may have mentioned before, Organ donation is really not some people something that people talk about. Um, so I think that just taking that first step to 
um, either be educated or get involved, uh, become interested is really the key to, you know, learning more about organ donation and edu like education is so important because there are so many myths out there about um, organ donation that deter people from signing up and being a recipient, you know, I am living proof that organ donation does work. And I think it's so important for people like county officials to, you know, really stress the importance of organ donation and how it can save someone's life. And you had mentioned that there are some myths um, around organ donation. Are there any common misconceptions that anybody in our group here would just like to dispel um, that are sort of common that you hear? You want me to take that one, guys? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, of course. You know, of course there is, um, you know, oh, you know, what if I, you know, what if there was something medically wrong with me? What if I had cancer or what if I had, you know, some kind of um, disease, you know, maybe I shouldn't, or you know what I hear all the time is, oh, nobody ever wants anything that I have, right? You know, what we try to say is that don't rule yourself out. Anyone age 16 or older can register as an organized tissue donor. Let the medical professionals at the time when you are potentially being considered as a donor, make that evaluation and make that determination. All you need to do is be willing to give the gift of life. That's all you have to do today. So that's a common one. Another common one is, you know, medical professionals aren't going to save my life if I have that heart on my driver's license. Well, right, exactly. That's the perfect response, Kate. So of course, medical professionals are gonna save your life. This is what they're dedicated to do. They have an oath to do no harm. Uh, they want to save patients' lives and they do it every single day. So the fact that someone would come in as an organ and tissue donor and that they would you know, not treat that person is so contradictory to what they're dedicated to doing every day. So there's that, but there's also the reality that they don't have access to the registry. It's only the recovery organizations that can access the registry at the time of someone's passing to see whether or not they have enrolled as an organ and tissue donor. So they don't have that information. And you know, people say, well, what if it's on my driver's license? Well, the reality is, again, if anybody has gone to the emergency room, and it's not a fun time, we all know that all of your personal belongings get bundled up and they get taken away and they get housed somewhere securely until you are um, you know, released from the hospital or something. The medical professionals aren't sifting through your driver's license to see through your wallet to see what you have in your wallet and whether there's something on your driver's license. They're taking care of you. They're making sure they can help you and save you and heal you. Right. Those are, sorry for my reaction. I had never heard those, uh, those things before. Yeah. I, I never considered that. Um, now, if I could just shift here for a moment and ask Lauren, if you could uh, talk a little bit more about your recipient story and your heart transplant that happened before your kidney transplant and just talk about how like the differences between both um, both surgeries, both operations. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. So my story begin, begins um, 13 years ago because it was around my seventh birthday that I started feeling tired all the time. And, you know, growing up, my mom hardly even kept Tylenol in the house. We, my brother and I, we were both very healthy all the time. And so, you know, I, I really had no symptoms um, that would lead us to believe that I had heart failure, that I would be in heart failure. My brother and I, yes, we were both perfectly healthy growing up, but unfortunately, you know, I started feeling very tired all the time. And when I would come home from school, I would come home and, and sleep. And I had trouble doing the easiest things such as, you know, walking up a flight of stairs, um, participating in gym class, playing with friends. I would always be tired and out of breath. And other than that, I had no symptoms, but fortunately my pediatrician did, at the time did send me to get, you know, more testing done at Westchester Medical Center. And what they found was that I was in the midst of heart failure and I went into the hospital, my heart was functioning at 14%. And there was fluid in my rib cage around my heart. And, you know, from there, my life changed overnight. And it, it's really, it's crazy to think you could be healthy one day and, you know, or not knowing what is going on, what's the underlying issue. And, you know, it, we would have never had thought that it would be heart failure and that it would lead us to this. But, Doctors tried treating my heart with steroids and medications for months. I spent a total of nine months at Columbia Presbyterian. And what they told me was that a heart transplant is really what I needed. And that would be the best thing for me. That would give me the best quality and outcome of life. So I was placed on the organ transplant waiting list and I was, like I said, fortunate enough to only have to wait a month and a half because as Aisha had mentioned, there are other people in New York who wait months and some who wait years. And then some people who can't wait that long and they don't make it. So I was very lucky to receive my transplant in time. And, you know, even though I waited a month and a half, it was, very critical each day. And I did spend 15 days on life support while I waited. Um, but fortunately on March 19th, 2009, I received my transplant. So I did just celebrate, you know, an anniversary. So we do celebrate that, that day. We call it uh, my second birthday. It's really my second chance at life. And you know, we always look back on the day and, and feel very grateful for um, what it has led to, to, you know, me being healthy and me returning to a normal lifestyle. And, you know, the, the transplant itself was maybe the easiest part because what came next was recovery. And recovery was really challenging because I had suffered a stroke that affected the entire right side of my body. And I had to do a lot of rehab. I couldn't walk after my surgery. I couldn't uh, raise my arms above my head. And I had a lot of work to do. But looking at me today, you know, 
I know that no one can see me now listening to the podcast, but you would not be able to tell that I had a heart transplant. And I lived 12 healthy years with my heart. And then, you know, I was diagnosed with kidney failure. And that was as a result of the medications, the anti-rejection meds that I take for my heart. And that whole experience with the kidney transplant was very, um, it was very hard for me because I had been back to living my life. I was back in, sc- in school. I was, um, you know, with friends, I was dating, I was doing normal things. And so to get hit with this, it was really like it blindsiding basically. It was very challenging and it did progress very quickly. And I, you know, I did spend three months on dialysis prior to my kidney transplant. And I have to say that dialysis may be one of the hardest things that I um, had to go through in my whole um, medical experience because, you know, the heart transplant was very difficult, but I was, you know, in a medically induced coma. And for this, I I wasn't. So I was feeling every treatment that I had and dialysis is so hard on your body. Um, I lost a lot of weight on it. I, I came down to 68 pounds. Um, and you know, the, after treatment, I could hardly walk and I was so weak. Uh, my mom would have to come in, you know, because of COVID, she couldn't come into the dialysis center. And that I know that that was also very hard for her. Watch, you know, we had, we have been my whole medical, you know, life, we had been together. And this was the first time that, you know, we were separated because of COVID. So I know for her, it was very challenging to see me go through that and to not be there by my side. And I, I remember distinctly the first treatment that I had at the outpatient dialysis center. I left and I, I just started crying. And my mom was like, what, what's the matter? What happened? Are you okay? And I was like, I said, you know, it's, it's so quiet in there. And that, that's what really made me sad was to see everyone else in the dialysis center waiting um, and hearing how eerily quiet it was in there. Um, you just hear the beepings of the machines. Like it's, it's really, it was really heartbreaking for me to, to see that and to see other people, you know, going through what, what I was going through. Um, so I feel so, so lucky that my mom was a match for me and, you know, because of her, I was able to stop dialysis and um, have the transplant and return to a healthy lifestyle. But I still think about um, the people that are in the dialysis um, center because I know that they're probably, the people that I was there with, they're probably still there today. That's right. And, you know, I found out that the average wait for a kidney in New York is four years. So 
I know that um, they're probably still there. That's so heartbreaking. And I wonder how many of those people are on, they're, they're waiting, you know, they're just waiting right. for a, a donation. That's the point though, Kate, is that you don't just wait. Unfortunately, people suffer. This is a very hard process. Dialysis saves your life, but it is, as Lauren described, the quality and the difficulty and the challenges that come with dialysis are not easy. And for people who are waiting for a liver donation or heart or lung, there is no dialysis. You know, we lost in 2020, 600 people died because a transplant didn't come in time. They didn't get that phone call um, and they didn't get that miracle. So we have the power in ourselves, in our state, in our people, in our communities to make sure that doesn't happen. And Jean, could you just talk a bit about your perspective through that process, what it was like not only to, to support Lauren, like as your daughter, but also as like to be a, a donor for her. Well, you know, it's funny, it's, you know, it's two totally different experiences because in, in the first, as the, as she was going through her heart transplant, I felt completely helpless. You know, there's nothing worse as a parent than watching you know, your child gets sicker and sicker and know that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to help them. I was powerless to help her and we were just at the, you know, at, at the mercy of just waiting, you know, um, you know, her being on the wait list and just waiting and wa me watching her decline every day. So it was a horrible experience. Um, and again, you feel so helpless with the kidney was different because now I was finally able to help her. And, you know, that was the one thing when, when we started talking about, you know, the kidney donation, all I could think about is I want it to be me because I want to finally, after all these years of, you know, that feeling of wanting to help her and being powerless, I finally had the ability to now do something to help her. So it's, it was two different, completely different experiences. And um, I'll, you know, I was never so happy to have a surgery in my life. You know, I went into that operating room like I was really like gung ho and running, you know, running to it. Um, they even commented about how you know excited I was. Um, but all I could think of was, you know, this is, I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to do something to help her get back to normal. And so. Um, you know, it was, it was the best feeling. It really was the, you know, just the best feeling in the world to be, to be able to know that I was able to help her and help her get back to her normal life. Yeah, take a minute here. <laughs> this is very, uh, very emotional and very, uh, very, it's something that you would want to hear, you know, as someone who is interested in being an organ donor, knowing, um, like what kind of impact you would make, um, now, um, are there any policy changes at the state or national level that you would like to see that would uh, help increase awareness, increase accessibility, anything like that? Um, you know, I mean, again, I think it's, it, my strategy is 
I would like to get this question in front of New Yorkers as many times as humanly possible and in as many places as humanly possible. And so, you know, we're working on that legislation to incorporate the donor designation question and all those other different state administered processes. So that's really key um, to create that opportunity to reach more New Yorkers on a more regular basis. You know, the DMV uh, originally was great, but now you, you renew your driver's license every eight years. That's just, it's not enough times to ask people, right? So I want frequency combined with messaging and that kind of cultural approach from leaders like you, right? So leaders in the community that say, that proudly raise the flag for donate life, proudly display our messaging and, and communicate, whether they do it through their newsletters or their emails or letters to their communities and their constituents, that this is what we do. A lot of counties do proclamations. You know, yes, symbolic, but to me that symbol is so important because it's a message that says, this is what we do for each other and we can save somebody's life and you can too. And so as uh, you start um, celebrating Donate Life Month, um, what are some things that you, like the group or Asia specifically, um, you would talk about what as individuals um, you would like to see happen to mark the occasion? Well, there's a lot of fun things that we do through social media. Um, you know, we have, there's like a, there's a rock painting campaign where um, a lot of the volunteers have painted rocks with the blue and green and the donate life message, and they leave them in all sorts of different random places. And then they get pictures in social media, like in state parks and at, you know, rest stops, bus stops, subway stops, you name it. So it's kind of this um, social media campaign and photographs. We also have on Friday, April 16th is blue and green day, where again, it's all about photo contests. It's about engaging kids doing, you know, sidewalk chalk, um, pictures and illustrations. Um, and we have a toolkit on our website for any organizations. Again, it can be labor unions, it can be, you know, individual businesses, restaurants, you know, whomever wants to engage. We have a toolkit on our website um, at donatelifenys.org so that we arm them with all the information and, and any kind of necessary uh, messaging to help them in participating in Donate Life Month and honoring all of the families and all the individuals who've given this amazing gift. Uh, Lauren and Jean, did you have the opportunity to meet the family um, that you received uh, your heart transplant from? So we haven't um, met the family yet. And um, Asia might be able to enhance this, but the process you know, that you have to go through in order to meet your donor family is lengthy. Um, you know, you, you write letters to each other and there has to be, you know, a certain, you know, amount of exchanges beforehand, before you meet them. And, you know, the letters can't be too personal. They can't be, you know, it has to be, there has to somehow still be, you know, a line of confidentiality between the letters. And we, my mom and I, you know, we did write a letter to my donor family 
and we did not hear back from them. But I have met so many other um, donor families who say that it just takes a long time. You know, it, it could take, you know, they're they're still grieving with their own loss and it, it'll just take a while for them to be ready to reach out. But, you know, they say, keep writing the letters. You know, we, we get your letters and we appreciate them, but it, it just takes us some time. So I hope that one day I will get to meet them in person. Um, just so that I could, you know, say thank you to them. And they would have the chance to see, I do know that my donor was a four-year-old boy from Illinois. So I would wanna meet them so that they can see, um, you know, that I'm living because of their son. To go from such tragedy to an opportunity for life is so powerful and, I, I couldn't imagine. I'm so glad that I'm registered to be an organ donor after. I mean, of course, I was happy to before this conversation, but um, I just want to thank every one of you for being on the call and for taking your time to have this conversation, um, and especially for all the work that you do to, pro to promote organ donation um, and the gift of life. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about for um, our listeners before we start to wrap up our conversation? I don't think so. I would just thank them. Thank them for everything they're doing already today. You know, we have partnered with NISAC and your membership for years now. Um, they've been wonderful partners in this cause and in this mission. So thank them for everything that they're doing. And I really hope they'll reach out to me to take advantage of some of the new things that we can offer them. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of NYSAC's County Conversations podcast. Keep tuning in to hear more insightful interviews on policy and innovative solutions at the county level. And feel free to reach out to our staff if there is a topic you would like to hear us discuss on the podcast.